I'm going to ask you to still your mind and focus on the scripture that we're going to read this morning. And honestly, that, that's what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to read God's word and his scripture. And God's word tells us that it is powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. So we're basically, I'm just going to read through these passages of scripture and just ask that God in the power of his Holy Spirit will speak to us, will show us what messages we need to hear from these things and then what he would have us do to apply these things. On, many, on one of the uh, many sleepless nights I had this week, it hit me how incredibly tricky Satan is. The light bulb went off when I realized that in my opinion, this week's chapter and reading from, from the radical book we've been going through and the challenges it gives us in light of scripture and Jesus's demands and commands for us as his followers, I think this is the heart of the matter when we think about trying to take back our faith from the American dream. It's the longest chapter in the radical book, and in my opinion, it's the most convicting, the most challenging, and the, the most personally difficult truth that I've wrestled with in the entire book. The, the message and the information and the, the things we see from Scripture in, in, uh, in the sixth chapter of Radical. And Paul says we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. And what hit me this week is that Satan doesn't want us to hear he doesn't want us to understand or especially be obedient to the truths and the things that we will see from God's word this morning. Now, you may disagree, and that's fine. You're entitled to that opinion. But I personally believe that materialism has become a huge blind spot for the American believer and for many American churches. I think we have grown complacent in this area and we've overlooked or we've ignored the Bible's teaching on this issue. And in many ways, as a result of that, we are living defeated, powerless Christian lives because we're not being obedient to a very clear teaching and principle outlined in Scripture. And Platt in his book outlines that this blind spot of materialism, and he compares that to the one of slavery that we have experienced as Christians and as churches in our history. For centuries, Christians refused to acknowledge their sin in the area of slavery. And at best, they would just kind of rationalize away and, and not think a whole lot about it. But at its worst, people took God's word and twisted and distorted it in such a way to justify that sinful behavior. And church, I want to tell you, people are doing the same thing today with the issue of materialism and greed in our culture, in our society. They are twisting and distorting God's word to say, it's okay, it's fine, and this is God's will. This is what God wants for you to neglect these very clear teachings in Scripture. And I believe Satan is doing everything he can to keep us from seeing and hearing what the Bible has to say on this topic so that we'll continue on as the American church and American believers with the status quo. But church, I feel in my heart, my heart of hearts, that God is beginning to stir in the hearts and lives of his children a zeal for breaking free from status quo, 
from the norm that has become so culturally expected and so normal in our culture and our churches today that it's paralyzed so many believers and so many churches. I think God is moving us and is calling us to a new level and a new period in history, outpouring his heart, his life, his spirit in his people who will be obedient and follow his commands uh, in taking the gospel to the nation so that every person can hear and respond. But I think Satan's deception is so real that, that at one point this week, I knew I needed to work on my sermon, and I was working on other things, kind of getting prepared for all that was taking place and dealing with some things. And I, and I literally thought in my mind, well, I can't work on my sermon because i got to get these other things done because they're important. And the Holy Spirit stopped me instantly and said, really? Really? That, that, that you are not going to give time? To one of the most important issues facing the American church today to take and see what my word has to say so that I might move and work in people's hearts and lives. Curtis, are you going to set anything before my word and the power that needs to be unleashed in the lives of my children this week? And I had to confess and repent of that and, and, and readjust some priorities and some time this week. So I'm going to ask you this morning to quiet your mind your heart and your spirit, and just focus on the words of Scripture that we're going to see this morning. Don't let Satan distract you from hearing what God wants to say to you on this topic. Now, let me give one last clarification before we dive into the text. I'm not denouncing money or possessions, saying that you or I are bad people because you have money or possessions or anything that is yours. What I am challenging this morning is your but more specifically and much more personally, my attitude toward money and possessions. Are those things a driving or a distracting force in our lives? Am I, are you using the things that God has blessed you with to help those in need? And I'm not talking about people who can't pay a bill, church. I'm talking about people who are dying by the minute because they do not have the most basic of their human needs for life, for physical existence met. People are dying by the minute. And we oftentimes will go out and we will spend on a single meal enough money to keep them alive for a month. Church. We've got to listen to what God has to say to us on this topic. It's about our attitude and, and answering the question of, am I using what God has given me to help those in need as I am commanded to do in the Bible? And the answer to that question is very simple. You need only look to your checkbook register to be able to find the answer to that question. So look with me at James chapter 1. James, the author of this book, was known as James the Just, who was the brother of Jesus and leader of the Jerusalem church, as identified in Acts chapter 15. And nearly every commentary you will read uh, about the book of James as it describes themes and, and teachings and lessons that you will see highlights that the central theme in James' book can be summed up in chapter 1, verse 22, where James writes, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
he wrote this book with a bent toward action, doing what God has commanded, not just hearing it and knowing it, saying, okay, I understand that. Not that, because we, we tell ourselves we know we understand, but we deceive ourselves because we don't put it into action. And so James' challenge is for us to not just be doers, or not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. And he gives us a number of actions and warns us of some things that we need to be alert to so that we're not deceiving ourselves. One of the actions he speaks of is found in chapter 1, verse 26. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So he gives us a challenge to, to keep our tongue in check. And he goes on later in his book and he elaborates on that a little further. Now, he talks here about a religion, that this person's religion is being worthless if this isn't evidenced as part of that religion. Well, this last week on Wednesday night, as part of our, our weekly Awana ministry with children, your kids from preschool through fifth grade had what we call pump the pastor night. They wrote in questions for me to come in as pastor uh, and answer. And I got everything from, can you stand on your head? Literally, can, can they, they asked the question, and one said, why did God create my sister? So, they were anonymous, so parents, I can't help you out, you know, in tracking down who that was. But I, said, I think it's to, you know, help patients in your life. I don't know what that was. But, so I had, you know, that end of the spectrum. To the other end of the spectrum, does God love Satan? Well, all right third through fifth graders, let's talk about, you know, God-loving Satan. Another uh, asked and said, well, if God knew Adam and Eve were going to sin, why did he still create them? So I said, well, let's talk about why God created your sister, all right, shall we? <laughs> shall we do that? But one of the questions they wrote said, why are there so many religions, and how many of them don't believe in Jesus? And I responded, and I told him, I said, well, what you need to understand, I said, is that a religion can be defined as a series of rules or, or regulations or systems that you follow. And really following that religious format can give you a good standing or a bad standing with the God or deity of that religion. If you do the right things, you're accepted. If you do the wrong things, you're rejected. I said, that's not what the Bible teaches because that's a works-based salvation. You earn your salvation or you forfeit your salvation based on what you do. And I said, that's not what God calls us to. I said, what we need to understand is God calls us to a relationship with himself. And, and he just details and describes that relationship in his word through Jesus Christ. So I said, if anything that, that you use to measure when you, people are talking to you about a religion or anything along those lines, you need to ask what does that say about Jesus Christ? And is it grounded and rooted in God's word? And if it is not rooted and grounded in God's word, you need to avoid that, okay? And that's the thing that you need to ask there. So as James is talking here about a religion, he's not talking about this list of regulations that you follow and you automatically are in or out based on that. He's talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ that does flesh itself out in principles and truths and guidelines. As we've been talking about, Jesus makes demands of his followers. He commands us to do some of those things. The, the, that is part of our faith, our relationship, and the religion of Christianity is being obedient to Jesus Christ. 
And so James here writes about the religion that's worthless when we don't keep our tongue in check. But in verse 27, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world, unstained from the world. And so he identifies that, that a relationship with Christ works itself out by believers caring for those who are in need. And here he identifies widows and orphans. And at this particular point in history, those were two very underprivileged, unrepresented people groups in that society and in that culture. They were greatly disadvantaged. And James says, you who are believers are to care for them. That is an outworking, an action of your faith in Jesus Christ is to care for the widows and the orphans. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, and listen to this, friends, and become judges with evil thoughts we have judged james is saying a person's value a person's worth and what have we based it on does he say upon whether or not they have wealth or money we have said this person is more important more significant because they have a gold ring and fine clothes than this person who is poor we pass judgment on humanity based on wealth and James says, we are having evil thoughts and making judgments that are not ours to make when we do that. He goes on to, to say that. He says, listen, my beloved, in verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Those are some powerful, very direct words that James writes. And he, in doing so, he reveals God's heart toward the poor, toward the underprivileged, for those who need help. But he also gives us a warning against playing to the rich and neglecting those who are, who are poor. In verse 14 of chapter 2, he delivers what may be uh, the most familiar passage in his entire epistle. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and, in, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
What good is that, James says? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You know, the challenge I've been setting for you over and over again through this radical study has been, what are you going to do with the commands and demands that Jesus makes upon you as one of his followers? It has been from day one about our response to this call, and it is the same thing that I set before you today. You know, there are a lot of challenges and a lot of things keep us from addressing this blind spot in our faith, if indeed it is a blind spot. But the issue isn't the things that distract us and keep us from confronting it. The issue is, are we going to step out in obedience and we're going to do what God has called us to do, whether anyone else does or not, and trust God and his power to help us overcome the obstacles and the hurdles and the things that are keeping us from being obedient to those commands in our lives. It's never about the obstacle. It's about the God who helps us overcome the obstacles that are before us. So James says, your faith without works is dead. Look at chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Look at that. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, James says, with an exclamation point in my version here. You adulterous people. Church, think about the charge and the accusation that James is making when he says those three words. You adulterous people. What is adultery? Adultery is when you have given yourself fully, completely, exclusively to share the most intimate part of who you are with a single person. And then you violate that commitment and those words and that, 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 uh, that wholehearted giving of yourself to that person to go and share that most intimate part of your life with other people, with other persons. And James calls us an adulterous people because he says we are supposed to be committed to God and the things of God, but we've had these affairs with the things of the world, our passions and our desires. In church, I would say our materialism and our possessions and our comforts that we've experienced in this life. And James goes on to say that. I'm not making this up, just, just speculating. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then look at how he sums up this chapter in verse 14. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Church, think on those words 
Think on what you have heard. Not from me speculate and theorize. Think on what you have heard me just read from God's word itself. And ask yourself, what would God have me do? What does God want me to do? And then our last passage, look at James chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Look at that terminology and think about that. Fattening for the day of slaughter. That comes from the animal kingdom and from our food that goes on our tables. You give anything you want in that last time leading up to to fatten, to get ready for the slaughter so you can feast on what's taking place. James says you have fattened your hearts. It's our hearts, church, in a day of slaughter. He says you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You know what? In so many ways, he doesn't resist because... He's powerless to do so. Today, billions of people in the world are condemned to death, church, by our failure to follow the Bible's teaching to care for the poor and needy in the world. They are powerless to resist because we have closed our eyes, we've covered our ears, and chosen to ignore it. That is on us. That is on me as well. And I'm not talking about people in America who are, who are being foreclosed on and losing their quarter million dollar homes and their luxury vehicles. I'm talking about those who are dying by the minute because they don't have the most basic of human needs like clean drinking water, clean water. You can see the bulletin insert, and, and I hope you have already read it. If not, pull that green piece of paper out of your bulletin. And I want you to put this somewhere where you will read it over and over again until you decide to do something about it. Don't just glance and go, oh, that's informational, and set it on the side. You read it until God stirs and shows you what you need to do in response to needs such as this. You see the worldwide need for clean drinking water that not a single person in this room ever thinks twice about. I wept when I read through that insert, and I saw where one child every 20 seconds dies as a result of diarrhea caused by unclean drinking water. This is how that gripped me. 
Caleb, Anna, Daniel, you guys come up here for a second. Daniel's not been feeling well this weekend, so he's here with us this morning, so we didn't infect anybody in the nursery. He's not going to come. We come up here with him, buddy. You guys come and stand right here. Church, I read that stat, and this is what went through my mind. You guys stand right here. One minute. Sit down, honey. That many children died in the world in that period of time because they couldn't get a cup of clean water. That's on us, church. That's on us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. The radical challenge that I want to set before you this week, and, and church, I'm, I'm going to get back to bulletin inserts next week. I, I've not foregone those. It's just been a very busy couple of weeks, and I haven't been able to get those in for our printing deadline. But the radical challenge this week, some of you have been reading, is to challenge you for the course of a year. This may be something that you're not able to sustain long term, but because we're trying to focus and say, let's give God a year of our life where we are radically focused on him and we are we are committed and surrendered to obeying his commands and his demands for us but for one year to sacrifice your money for a specific purpose and i challenge you to pray and research and let that specific purpose be one of helping some of the incredibly less fortunate and impoverished people in the world there are a myriad of ways that you can do that. And, and as we've done this whole time, I'm trusting God to lead you to what you need to do. Maybe we talked about the mission trips. Maybe it's you taking your money so you can go on a short-term mission trip. I don't know. But I want you to pray and ask God how he would show you to sacrifice, not just give and say, oh, I got a little extra here, but to sacrifice your money for a specific purpose to help those who are in need. I'm going to show you a video now uh, of how your dollars can, can make an impact uh, in this way of giving the very precious gift of life. Then after the video, I've got someone who's going to come and share with you one way. It's not the only way, but it's an idea. It's a challenge that as it was spoken, it, God disturbed within my heart and said, that's something that I want Mount Pleasant Baptist Church to be a part of in the year of 2011. So watch this video and then uh, we'll come and share. The village where I was working 
It's a village of Higaunon tribe where children and even adults are dying due to uh, waterborne diseases. cemetery and we were at the two-year-old's coffin and we were wondering if you know maybe it was the first kid that the people ever had and it was their only child that died or had they lost any more since then it was a real eye-opener because um, it's something that we're not used to culturally because it seems so easily preventable to us Some of the villages that we go to are extremely remote and um, trucks can't get there. You have to go by motorcycle. Sometimes you're hanging off the side of a cliff uh, with the motorcycle, you're right on the edge. <laughs> or you have to cross over really big rivers. And then we get there and the people are so happy to see us. Sometimes. We've had a couple kids cry because they've never seen white people before and they're scared. But um, most of all, the people are just so thankful. They want to learn more about us. Seeing the love that the parents have on their faces when they hold their kids, it, uh, it just makes us glad that uh, these water filters are getting installed so that um, they won't have to go through the heartbreak that other families have gone through before them. By visiting the villages and explaining about the water filters, it opens the doors for us to tell them why we're there, why, why we're bringing um, the filters. One of the favorite things for the Filipinos to always ask us is, where are you going, what are you doing here? And they want to know why we're in their country. So when we explain to them why we've brought the water filters, uh, we also have an opportunity to explain um, the love of Christ, and that's why we're showing them love is because he first loved us. The presence of the, those students helping them going to these villages really exemplify God's love to them. They recognize it that it's God's love for them through these students. And now Jesus, Jesus has, has changed my heart. Something that we all struggle with is, uh, am I smart enough? Do I have the right background? Um, you know, I'm not Christian enough for this. That's something that I definitely struggled with. Thank you for welcoming us. It finally just comes down to, are you willing to be obedient? Because um, none of us have arrived. I mean, I just grew up in a really small town, and um, I'm just majoring in dairy science. And I feel like that's, you know, a pretty simple major, but it can still be used for big things. When you help people to provide for themselves and their family, um, it's showing love. And uh, then it gives you a door to share the gospel. And um, so I don't think that I'm any, anything special really at all, but uh, I just decided to be obedient to God this summer. I think that there's no greater call than answering the one that Jesus has already called all of us to. This is Robbie Riggs. Uh, Robbie is in a uh, small group that Shelly and I are part of. We've been meeting about a year. I think we just had our year anniversary. And uh, last fall, Robbie had gotten a hold of the book Radical. I think he went on vacation. He came back, and we had a small group. And from almost the moment I walked in the door, Robbie was like, 
man, he'd read chapter six. I could tell he'd read chapter six because, boy, he was, he was all over the, this thing. And, he, and the Lord had birthed an idea in his heart. And as soon as he said it, I said, this is something that our, our church needs to hear and we need to uh, give ourselves to in the upcoming year. And so Robbie has been running point on this and he and Gary Beatty with our missions uh, team have talked about some opportunities. And so I wanted him to come and share with you uh, the burden that the Lord had put on his heart. And so he's here this morning, his wife, Jenny, they're gonna be checking in at the hospital tonight to have a new baby tomorrow. So we wanna pray for them in that. But Robbie, thanks for coming this morning. And just tell us kind of what has gone on within you and then the challenge that uh, you wanna issue to our congregation this morning. Good morning. <clears throat> Thank you, Curtis. That's he explained, uh, we have had the privilege of being in a week, uh, monthly small group Bible study with the Barnes family. And over the summer, I was looking for a little um, extra reading material, and he suggested this book, Radical, that he was thinking we might do in 2011 as a congregation. I read it, and for the first time, something finally opened my eyes to what I knew was there all along, but wouldn't allow myself to take a look at, is just the greed and abundance that we have as a society and the materialism that's just become status quo. And I'll be honest with you, six months ago, this wasn't a concern for me. It wasn't an issue for me. It's not, honestly not even an issue I really even knew much about. But after being convicted by, by reading this and seeing how this looked in my life and the life of my family, uh, we did a little bit of research, and the st statistics are staggering. Um, hopefully you've seen some of those in your insert. Uh, there's about a billion people on the planet, and one out of every, I'm sorry, there's, a, there's six billion people on the planet, and a billion of them are in impoverished conditions where they don't have access to sanitized water. Um, like Curtis demonstrated, a child dying every 20 seconds. Do y'all know what that would look like if that were taking place in Colonial Heights? By the end of the day, how many hundreds of children would have died? At what point in time would we do something about that? What if it was in our church? By the end of this service, the whole nursery would be gone. Would we do something about that? So really, I was sitting there talking with Curtis, and, you know, we're having dessert and coffee, and I said, yeah, this is, and I kind of rambled for about 15 minutes. And he said, well, you know about the problem now. Now you own it. <laughs> I said, okay, I don't know what that means, but he said, I'd like for you to develop a well and then challenge our church to use that as a donation point to collect monies to give to this obviously very worthy cause. So for the next year, uh, this well is going to be located probably different points around the, the church, but primarily in the foyer. It does have a donation box for you to uh, make any specific gifts to this challenge. Um, depending on the level of proceeds that we receive in, it's going to determine how impactful we can be. Uh, we talked about putting a goal. He said, why are we trying to cap God? But I'll just challenge you this. In a kind of half-hearted statement, I said to Curtis, you know, I go out to eat every day for lunch. 
I completely know it's wasteful. But I feel like it's something that I've earned. I deserve. I'm working hard. I need to get out and get a lunch. And I cannot wait for that Diet Coke. I don't care if it costs $2, $5 a day, or five days a week. It's only $10 a week. And then I read that for $10, I can get a pot to give to a family to convert all their unsanitized water to clean drinking water. And that just was overwhelming to me that with our abundance, with a little, we can do a lot. Uh, so my family has taken the challenge that tap water was good enough for Jesus. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> um, yeah. It's certainly uh, good enough for us. I don't need Starbucks. I don't need Diet Cokes. Uh, so everything that we're doing from a beverage standpoint, dining in uh, or dining out, we are drinking tap water. And the money that we would have spent, we're donating to this cause. And in the instances where we do get a Diet Coke or entertain people and have refreshments provided, we're matching that towards this fund. And hopefully uh, we can really see the Lord work in all of our lives and let's do something about this. Amen. Church, those are the type of things that God is stirring within people's hearts and spirit. And, and I invite you and encourage you to be a part of this. Uh, I know we were out with the staff this last week. We've talked about this. And so we were having lunch and everybody's like, all right, order your last one because Robbie's putting us on notice on Sunday. We have to start matching now. So, uh, so enjoy that last beverage before, before the matching challenge comes out. But I encourage you, th this is a starting point. This is not the only thing to do by any, any stretch of the imagination. But I just want to challenge you to pray and to say, God, what would you have me to do? in response to, the, to your words, what we've seen in Scripture today.